okay. Acts chapter 13. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you understand that Acts 13 is a real transitional point in this very important New Testament book. Uh, because we know that there has been a lot of ministry going on up to this point, and Peter's been very much involved in it, and some of the other apostles have been involved in it, and that sort of thing. And the Apostle Paul has taken uh, much more involved in just in what we studied last week and that sort of thing, where he, uh, he went to, to Antioch uh, with uh, Barnabas, and, uh, and they were there for a while doesn't seem they were doing that much evangelism, but they certainly were there encouraging the church and helping the church to grow and um, that sort of thing. But chapter 13 is a real transitional chapter in the rest of the chapter and what, or the rest of the book, and we're going to find that Paul is going to be the principal and primary character uh, from this point on for the most part. So chapter 13... Uh, verses 1 through 25, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Now, there, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, Cyrene, Manin, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord uh, and, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, so there you go, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and able to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist fell uh, and, and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand, and the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up uh, and motioning said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. We're going to stop there. Okay. Okay. 
Okay. <laughs> Luke, the author of Acts, returns to the goings-on in Syrian Antioch, to which Paul and Barnabas had gone to teach after he had covered the arrest and miraculous escape of Peter and the death of Herod in chapter 12. One of the things I hope that you glean from this particular passage is the very central stage that the Holy Spirit takes in this big picture. I'm firmly convicted that, uh, that Reformed people don't talk about the Holy Spirit near enough. We focus on the Father, we focus on the Son, and very often the Holy Spirit kind of takes a back seat to most of the things that we do. But this should be a reminder to us that the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to every effective ministry. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit said, Did that mean that there was a voice that came from heaven? Possibly, probably. But I want to remind us this morning that the Holy Spirit still speaks. He still speaks forth into the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never in my life heard the Holy Spirit speaking verbally. Be kind of neat if that happened. But I've never heard that. In our day, God typically speaks most of all through his words, but also through people. As the Spirit of God is moved in them. Notice here that it was Holy Spirit who set these two men apart for this mission. It's our practice every two years to open up nominations for the offices of ruling elder and deacon. It is absolutely essential that man or men are nominated and elected to office who are called to do so by the Holy Spirit. We trust that the Holy Spirit has spoken to those who are nominated and also to those who have elected them. If the Holy Spirit is not part of this process, 
then we are not putting men in office that God has called to one of the two offices. The whole thing I just want you to understand is this, is even though you haven't heard God speak, the Holy Spirit speak to you verbally, you have heard him speak to you internally. We have a high standard for our teaching elders. Some of you are familiar with the process. Some of you maybe are not. But to become an ordained minister in the PCA, this is what you have to go through. And they call it the trials of ordination because it is a difficult process. First thing you have to have is a minimum of a bachelor's degree from an accredited seminary. No seminary degree, no teaching elder. Period. You have to do a one-year internship at an approved church or other ministry. That's what Mike is doing right now here at Springs. He has to do that before he can be ordained. But... Before a man can even, after he's done those two things, can actually become the pastor of a church in the PCA, is he must be issued a call by a church. In other words, just because you go to seminary and, 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 and meet some of those other requirements in your internship does not necessarily mean you're going to be ordained. You don't get ordained in the PCA as a teaching elder until you actually have a church saying, we want this guy. I have known guys that have gone through the trials and tribulations of seminary and never entered the ministry because they were never called. He must pass an extensive, involved ordination exam. He must be elected by the congregation. We do not appoint teaching elders to positions in churches in the PCA. The congregation does that. Once all of those things have taken place... Then, and only then, is he actually ordained by the denomination. It's very often called the trials of ordination, because let me tell you, I've been through it, and I've walked a lot of other guys through it, and it is a trial. It's not easy. It's hard. It's difficult. But there's a purpose behind it. The purpose of this lengthy and difficult process is to ensure as much as humanly possible that only those men who have been called and set apart by the Holy Spirit for this office actually serve. We have high standards. And there's always pressure to loosen things, make things easier.
But I just wanted, the, the reason I'm going through all this is you'll understand this, is, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who called Paul and Barnabas to this, but it's also the same Holy Spirit who calls every person who enters into any kind of a ministry to that ministry. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard the Holy Spirit speaking. But I know when he's spoken to me. And he has at times. So Paul and Barnabas set off on what we call Paul's first missionary journey. But I want to set the record straight. Paul has been a missionary ever since he was on the road to Damascus. Actively involved in ministry in a number of different places. But they leave and they set off for Cyprus. Now Barnabas was a native of Cyprus. That's where he was from. And you can see that that gave the two of them, in a sense, an added advantage because he knew something of the culture. He knew something of the people. He had a, a, a door open to him that perhaps other people would not have had. In other words, Barnabas was perhaps the very best missionary candidate <laughs> to carry the gospel to Cyprus. They arrived in Salamis, which is on the eastern shore of Cyprus. And what they did was they just went basically all the way across the island, which is not all that far by today's standards, but it was a, about 100 miles from coast to coast of the island of Cyprus. And what did they do? They proclaimed the word of God to the Jews in the synagogues. There was a significant Jewish population on Cyprus. Paul will write uh, some years later, he, said, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. So you'll see this over and over again as Paul goes to different places. You can, he's, the first place he goes is to the Jews, to the synagogues, to the Jewish people. He follows that practice through most of his ministry. But why is Paul then called the apostle to the Gentiles? It's because it didn't stop there. Paul knew that God had called him not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. If you read from Galatians chapter 1, verse 16, but when he who had sent me or set me apart before I was born 
and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among who? The Gentiles. The John that is mentioned here in 13.5 is likely referenced to John Mark. We don't know for certain. He was Barnabas' cousin. And he is basically the reason why Paul and Barnabas will part company on their second missionary journey. Paphos was on the opposite coast of where they first entered. It was actually the capital of Cyprus. And it was here in Paphos that they encountered a fellow named Bar-Jesus. He was described as both a magician and a false prophet. He's also known as Elamas, the magician. What was he doing? He was the opposition. Standing against Paul and Barnabas and their message. He opposed them, seeking to turn their proconsul from pet faith. Now, who was a proconsul? That was a Roman. He must have been intently listening to the message of Paul and Barnabas. And Bar Jesus didn't like it. He was a magician. A sorcerer, possibly an astrologer. I shared with you not so many months ago a little excerpt from uh, A Distant Grief by uh, Kefa Simpanji, who's a Ugandan pastor about all the things that took place in the takeover of Uganda by Idi Amin and the persecution of the church that resulted of it and things like that. And the example that uh, I used was that he had this experience when he was a young boy where his mother took him to the shrine of a cult uh, priestess. And he had a conversation with this woman as she sat in the middle of hot coals without getting burned. Now, you and I hear something like that, and we're thinking, that's a fairy tale. We've never experienced anything that comes close to that in a supernatural sense. Now, let me tell you something. The opposition is growing in the good old U.S. of A., 
I saw, uh, you know, I was, I was going through the internet looking for some material this week, and one of the titles to one of the articles I saw was this, is witches today outnumber Presbyterians in the United States. Whether that's true or not, I can't tell you. But in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, Wicca, paganism, astrology, all that kind of stuff is growing. Two thousand and eighteen, in a poll, twenty-nine percent of Americans say they believe in astrology. That exceeds the membership of all of the mainline churches combined. Witchcraft is growing in America. 1990, there were 8,000 Wiccans in the U.S. Today, there is 1 million. And they're estimating that with just a few years, it could be as many as 8 million. According to some, witchcraft is the fastest growing religion in America. Christianity, on the other hand, is in a serious state of decline. Both in its numbers and also in its influence. People today have a huge fascination with the occult. So what I'm telling you is this, is even though we have a hard time relating to things that go on in places like Uganda, that sort of thing may become a lot more commonplace in our lifetime, in our homeland. Elimas, this magician, was, was actually opposing Barnabas and Saul because he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from faith. His purpose, his intention was to prevent this man from believing in Jesus Christ. I would say that there are a lot of people that are just indifferent to the things of God. one thing to be indifferent to the things of God it's another thing to directly resist and interfere in the things of God so how did Paul and Barnabas respond to this magician sorcerer fellow Paul called him out. He called him a son of the devil, an enemy of righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. How many people 
in the United States and in the world today do you think can have the idea that they can remain neutral when it comes to religion? They don't have one opinion one way or the other. They don't care how things go one way or the other. But we understand this. There is no, there's no middle ground. None. Not an inch. They're either for Christ or they're against him. And they wander aimlessly somewhere in between. Many people. It's impossible to be neutral when it comes to Jesus. You just can't be. Either you know him or you don't. Either you serve him or you don't. Either you acknowledge yourself him as your Lord or you don't. You're either in or you're out. No neutral or middle ground. He's either your Lord or he isn't. Either he's the way and the truth and the life or he isn't. Either you're committed to him wholeheartedly or you aren't really committed to him at all. I will write later, whoever loves God is known by God. Knowing God is loving God. If you know him, if you really know him, you also love him. Elimos paid immediately dearly for his attack against Paul. The Lord blinded him on the spot. Sometimes there are immediate consequences for defying God. Especially, I would estimate, when you are actively trying to keep others from coming to him. Blocking the way for those who would go. Closing the door for those who would come in. Despite the efforts of this sorcerer, the proconsul believed. when he saw what occurred. Why? Because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. God's word is many things. It's enlightening. It's, 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 it's good news for those who would believe it. It's bad news for those who won't. It's infallible. It's an error. It is authoritative. 
And you know that this is true, that when you read the Bible, you know that God is speaking to you. And if you don't, you need to consider why not. I read the Bible a lot. And every time I close it again, I know that God has spoken to me. I don't doubt it for another, for a minute. No one has to convince me by some human argument that the Bible is God's word. I know it is. It speaks to me. It has legs. It runs after me. Give that credit for that to Martin Luther. It's not only true for him, it's true for all of us. If you truly love God, you truly also love his word. Thanksgiving. Originally a Christian religious feast. It's amazing how so many people on Thursday will be celebrating Thanksgiving for all the wrong reasons. Well, they may be thankful a relatively good life they live and that sort of thing but they don't believe this because God has blessed them it's because they think they've done it on their own when was the last time you thanked God for the Bible For his word. We're going to feast on Thursday. Lots of good food, friends and family. We do it once a year. The fact of the matter is we can feast on the Bible just about any time we want to. And I want to just encourage all of us to have that mindset. Please don't pick your Bible up and just bring it to, your, to, to church with you on Sunday and then go home, put it down on the table, and let it sit there until you come to church next week. We need to be fed continually, constantly. And it's not something that anyone else can do for us. I can't do it for you. If I could, I would. I 
And just be thankful that we live in a place where the Bible is so readily available to us, where we can, we can go to the store and buy all the Bibles we want. We can give them to whoever we want to. We can send them to whoever we want to send them to. Heaven forbid that those freedoms ever be taken away from us. We have been more free to evangelize the world than perhaps any people in the world have ever been in all of history. So can you say with Martin Luther that the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. I hope so. I do. No one can do it for us. It's one of those things that we have to do. And I can feed you little tidbits on Sunday morning. But it's not near enough. Not near enough. So when you're thanking him this week, Thanking for the Bible. What a blessing. What a tool. There's nothing. 